Welcome to Professoring, the show that gives you the R and R. The real and realer about life and academia. I am Badia Ahad Lagardi, literary scholar, native Chicagoan, super stepmom, amateur golfer, and co-host. And I'm Anthony Ocampo, sociologist, writer, Los Angelino, puppy parent, Virgo, and your other co-host. And today on this episode of Professoring, we'll be talking about not the first, but the second book project. The second book project, the sophomore book. (laughs) I have a lot of feels about this. Clearly, we both have a lot of feels about this. But why don't you tell us what this topic is all coming from? Here's the deal. There are seminars, webinars, classes, books even, about how to do that first book. Basically the book where you take that lovely dissertation that you (laughs) wrote for an audience of three to five people and magically transform it into a book that will hopefully be number one, published by somebody, a trade press or university press. And in an ideal world, actually sell a few copies. And so, You know, with book one, in some ways, the very limited expectations that you have about it, because most scholars are just really excited to publish a physical book, that ends up serving you in a good way because you don't get too much. I mean, it's hard to write a book, but you don't think too much about it because you're like, I got to write this thing. I got to get someone to publish it so that I can get tenure, right? The thing with a second book. Well, also, let me just add. Yeah. And technically, you've already written a book because you wrote your dissertation. It may not be in the final form that it needs to be in, but the words are already on the page. So there's that. I like that you honored the fact that the dissertation, I mean, know that everyone's like a dissertation's on a book, but. Yeah, it is. If a book is like cooking or like a casserole, the dissertation is like. You've prepared all the ingredients that are on the counter. All you got to do is assemble it all over again, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, kind of, I would actually say that it's a little bit further along. So maybe if we're using the same analogy, it's Uh the casserole before it's been put in the oven. Wow. So you've actually put everything together and now it just needs to be cooked. Okay. That's my thought about that analogy that I think we've already taken too far. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. So, (laughs) gosh, you're so encouraging. So with respect to book number one, my first book, which is called The Latinos of Asia, How Filipino Americans Break the Rules of Race. It's a book that is an LA based book. It's all about the way Filipino Americans who are children of immigrants think of their racial place in the United States. And When I first wrote this book and it first got published, I was lucky because there were journalists that wanted to talk about it. I got invited to NPR. I've been invited to talk to journalists in the Philippines, Latin America, um, local newspapers. And so it was really cool because you went from writing a dissertation that again, only three to five people maybe have read to the general public all of a sudden engaging with your work, which feels like such a blessing, but at the same time becomes its own little pressure cooker because you feel like the second book 
has to match up. And with the second book, if we're using that casserole analogy, <laughs> <laughs> now we're never gonna get rid of the casserole. I know. Just it's here with us. It's staying. Let's just roll with it. Yeah, the first book you have the casserole, as you say, you just put it in the oven. With the second book, I feel like I haven't even gone to the grocery store yet. <laughs> but you, on the other hand, have a book. Book I number have two. A book. I have book number one, and I have book number two. Well, I'm curious. Okay, so I gave you my take yes. on how book number one is affecting my ability to write book number two, which, by the way, is the story of queer, second generation, Latinx, and Filipino-American boys in L.A. But I'm curious about the relationship you have with book number one and book number two and how that's all panning out. So I think everything that you said about writing book number one is on point. I think it completely mirrors my own experience, except for the fact that my first book didn't quite make the splash. I would say that yours did, uh, partially just because it's so specialized. So my first book is Freud Upside Down, African-American Literature and Psychoanalytic Culture. So if you have no explicit interest in psychoanalysis <laughs> and or African-American literature um, or psychoanalytic culture, then, you know, it may not be like the thing that you pick up uh, first and foremost. But, you know, I really loved that book. I think it got and continues to get a lot of respect. Um, and I'm always shocked, like when I go to conferences and there are people who are like, oh, you're Badia Ahad, Freud Upside Down. I'm like... Okay. That's cool. It is cool. It is nice. It's like somebody read it. Thanks. But I think that you have a lot of support around book number one. You've gotten the validation from those three to five people. And even (laughs) if there are only three to five people, those are three to five really important people in your life who told you that that was a good project. It's also emerging from the project that got you a job. So there's a lot of good things that are just swirling around book number one. Even if it's not a popular book, it does a lot for you. So the project got you a job. The book got you maybe tenure and promotion. So book number two is usually coming on the other side of that experience. You have to find your committee of people again to talk about these new ideas. I'm curious you talked about your first book yes but unlike a graduate school program there's no one telling you yo you got to start a new book now besides like the promotion part of things so when did you know first of all what's your second book about and when did you know that this was going to be the one you were going to put a ring on it with Because well, it's a relationship. The book I is a relationship. I actually think it's a good thing that people aren't telling you that you need to start working on your second book now. Because I think you should decide when you should start working on the second book. I don't think it should be an externally imposed situation. After the first book came out and after I earned tenure and promotion, I wasn't actually sure what I wanted the second book to be about. I mean, I obviously have one now, but what I really loved, I would say, about that process of uncertainty is that it allowed me to play around with some ideas and to publish some shorter things to see, you know, 
are people vibing with my new idea? Is it going to get published in this article form? You know, so is there an audience for this new idea? Or is this something kind of circulating in my own head that, you know, I'm excited about, but nobody else wants to read about or talk about? And what was the idea? So my second book project is all about black nostalgia. So the the working title right now is Afro Nostalgia, Feeling Good in Contemporary Black Culture. I know this is weird, but it really came about because I felt like so much of the work in African-American studies focuses on trauma Mm. and focuses on melancholy and focuses on things that are hard to talk about, they're necessary. You know, a lot of the work is around you know, the transatlantic slave trade, right? And the reverberations of that experience. So I think that that's the kind of stuff that is pervasive in in my field, at least. So I wanted to do something a little counterintuitive and talk about black joy. That is, (laughs) it's funny you say that because on the plane ride here, I was reading this interview with one of my new favorite writers. His name is Brian Washington. He writes for The New Yorker now. Uh Uh-huh. And the title of the piece is something to the effect of he's a black writer from Houston. He's queer. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I just want to write stuff that makes me feel good. Yeah. And so it's totally it's not that he's erasing the negative effects of queerness or blackness in everyday life. He actually it's not his term, but he he uses this term. He says traumedy. A lot of his Mm. work is traumedy. So it's sort of. It's anchored in trauma, of course, but yeah. it tries to locate joy as well. Yeah, I mean, the piece of information that really got that project going for me was the snippet from an archive that I found that basically said that African people were not able to experience nostalgia. So this form of memory that makes you feel good Right? You know, you think about the things that you're nostalgic for, you know, food, music, you know, it brings back these good feelings. And so there was this idea that enslaved persons or enslaved Africans could not experience nostalgia. Like they didn't have the emotional capacity to experience that. And so I just thought that was really compelling and really thinking about, wow, there's actually not a lot of scholarship out there about black people and good feelings. So I want to <laughs> I want to touch on the joy thing with respect yeah. to you and your process. Yeah. What does it feel like to do this new project mm-hmm. which is so cutting edge but you're untethered to the dissertation advisor, or the committee members yeah. or to be honest like I feel like you're even untethered from the field a little bit because yeah. you're more willing to experiment with yeah, with totally. prose or what counts as literature. Well, I don't know if I feel untethered from the field and as much as I feel like it's not the thing that people are talking about right now, but I'm also hoping that that's the thing that makes it worth talking about right now. <laughs> um, so I've actually found some kindred spirits in other disciplines. So, for example, I love, love, love everything that Bianca Williams, she's an anthropologist, Uh, So very far away from me in literary studies, but she wrote a whole book about black women and happiness. So for me, that book was so much fun to read and it was so in line with the kind of work that I want to be doing and the kind of work that I want to be talking about. So I think 
to answer that question is that I have to find a new committee of people Mm -hmm. to be in conversation with, right? So that you have to cultivate that for yourself. Right. So I think that that's a hard thing to do, but I think it's a necessary thing to do when you're looking ahead at book two because you don't have, you know, the group of folks who are there telling you that this is good or this is bad or this is, you know, what have you. So, you know, going to conferences, sitting in on panels, you know, really reading those journal articles, like figuring out like who's doing the kind of work that is in line with where your head is at and um, allowing them to both serve as your readers, but then also as your motivation and inspiration. So I think that that was really important for me for book two. But I think that this also gets to something that you and I have kind of talked about before, which is that I actually started writing most of that book without telling anybody that I was writing that book. It was a secret? I wasn't, I mean, it's not like a secret. Like I was, you know, intentionally like keeping it from people, (laughs) but I just wanted to know for myself and this goes back to not just the project like the topic of the project in terms of thinking about black joy but actually feeling joy myself when writing the project yeah so i feel like when you're writing book number one it's intense because so much is writing at least for me when you know i'm in a field where my tenure promotion is really based on the publication of a book. So you're writing under duress. Even if it's a project that you like, it's still one that has a purpose and a time attached to it. But for book number two, no one's really asked, well, at least in my case, people weren't asking me about it explicitly. I got tenure already, so there's no professional pressure looming. And I just wanted to know what it felt like to just be a writer again. <laughs> just be a writer again. I love that you wrote this book on Black Joy and felt so compelled to experience joy in the process. In the process, yeah. because it, that juxtaposition of the first book being written under duress to reclaiming that feeling of joy. Yeah. Uh, for my book, the book that I'm working on right now which I hope to finish by the end of the year, or my editor hopes, is that (laughs) uh, it's called Brown and Gay in L.A., Mm -hmm. Queer Sons of Immigrants Coming of Age. And, uh, you know, when I was doing the dissertation, toward the end, I knew I wanted this to be my second book. Mm -hmm. I had gone to graduate school in sociology, became an expert on immigration, particularly children of immigrants, this group that's called the Immigrant Second Generation. And what tripped me out is that in my life, I knew a lot of children of immigrants Mm -hmm. um, being queer. I knew a lot of queer children of immigrants. And in the research, you couldn't for the life of you find a respondent or an interview of someone that identified as queer. So it was like this big gaping hole in the literature. So I thought, yo, I got to inject sexuality into immigration research. So. With that said, as someone that is queer and second generation, I'm a son of immigrants, the personal, very personal nature of the topic also ended up being this extra dimension of pressure. Well, I was gonna ask you, so, and this may or may not be connected, but I think it is connected even if it's not explicit to you in this moment, but I hear it. 
how do you garner the motivation to write book number two when you don't have that time pressure or, you know, that external thing that's looming over you? Like how, like what propels you to actually do this now that that's kind of stripped away and the motivation to produce the thing is internal. Yeah, I probably would not have been able to articulate it in this way, but what I realized with, with the dissertation and this new, um, and then the first book and now the second book, I think deep down somewhere, I always felt that with writing, as much as writing was not necessarily fun in graduate school, mm-hmm. after graduate school, writing, it's a way to get to a place of understanding that I don't have yet. And so what propelled me, uh, real talk, is that in my own life, I was experiencing some fraught relationships with family and other people, in part because I came out as queer. And I had met a ton of LGBTQ children of immigrants who happen to have really positive experiences mm-hmm. with parents, um, were thinking about getting married. And mm-hmm. to be honest, I was just on a pure personal level curious about how on earth they got there. And so that's mm-hmm. what propelled the research project. Uh-huh. I think there were other things going on too. When it comes to academia, publications are your currency. So I think in the back of my mind, I always thought, okay, I have to keep producing research uh-huh. if I want to at least consider taking on a different job. Sure. So that was part of it too. But I think the moment when I realized that I have to write this book is like you, I wrote shorter mm-hmm. things just to test drive whether this idea could turn into a whole book. Cause not all ideas should become sure. a whole book as you've talked about in the many book proposal <laughs> workshops. The many nuggets of wisdom. I guess, I guess. <laughs> and so I wrote this one piece and I, I got it published. It was my first publication after my dissertation research. And it was just about the ways in which queer sons of immigrants, the process in which they come out to family, the way they strategize that, the way they navigate it, mm-hmm. the way they navigate you know, family context as here in America, but also back home in Mexico or the Philippines. And I was giving a talk, not on this project, but on my first book, The Latinos of Asia. And this 19 year old college student approaches me after the talk and was like, I know that you came to talk about your book, but I just wanna let you know that I read your article about children of immigrants coming out and I read it And I started crying because my mom and I haven't been getting along since I come out. So I printed it out and I made my mom read it. And then she started crying. And then we read it together. We both started crying together. And so I was like, okay, this is why writing matters. It reminded me that writing isn't about the CV. It's not about career advancement. It's about creating a story arc or a narrative that has just been unavailable. As, as your book does. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, so important to keep in mind because when I talk to a lot of faculty post-tenure, they'll say, I really want to make some headway on book number two, 
but I just am so busy. You know, the life of a tenured faculty member, everyone thinks it's, you know, utopia on the other side, but you have a lot more service to do. You know, you have your your plate gets really, really full. And so it becomes very easy for those. You, you have to be a mentor, you know, so you, it becomes very easy to let that slip away. And a lot of people just can't find the motivation to stick with it. And one of the things I always say, just by way of advice is, well, if it's a topic that means a lot to you, I think that that makes it easier to write. I Mm -hmm. think it's a lot harder if you're stuck in kind of a pre-tenure mindset and you're writing for the institution, right? So you're writing this thing so that you can get promoted or you're writing this thing so that you can have some kind of external institutional reward. That's not enough, I think, for book two, you know, for you to really get motivated around book two. That would not be the thing that gets me to the computer. I mean, and as much as I wanted to embrace joy and write from this very different emotional and psychological space, that's not to say that writing is ever easy. You know, so if it's just about what I can get from my school as a result of having written this thing, you know, I just don't know if I would have ever garnered the motivation to get the thing done. But it sounds to me like one of the things that we have in common with book two is that we're not writing for them, we're writing for us. Totally, totally. So I think that that internal motivation is is clutch because as life gets busy, and I know I used to think I was busy in grad school. <laughs> and then Nope. <laughs> and then I got the you know, I was on the tenure track and Okay, I, wait, 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 wait. Okay. I don't want to diminish the grad tra- graduate school experience yes, yes, yes. because for that stage in your life you were busy. I was busy. And, okay. and and let me be frank. There are many folks that are dissertating whilst raising families, yes. taking care of yes. parents. So I don't want to, I also don't want to diminish that as well. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Um, but as you move along from the graduate school years to the tenure track, and to be honest, like associate life, associate professor life is busy in a very different way. Yeah because you're now bombarded with service and you're expected to run a department, et cetera, et cetera, that internal motivation becomes clutch. And I think that there are not enough, what's that thing they say, carrots or sticks? Carrots. There are not enough sticks. Oh, sticks, sticks hit you, right? Or, okay, (laughs) never mind. Let's just not go there. If you're talking about a motivator, you're talking about carrots. Carrots. All right, all right. You need sticks carrots. Sticks are not motivating anyone. No, 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 no. No more sticks. <laughs> you need carrots. Yes. And I love listening to writers talk about process. Yeah. And what's interesting is that I've heard a lot of novelists, short story writers, nonfiction writers talk about having full-time jobs, 40 hours a week, mm-hmm. more than 40 hours a week, raising a family but still managing to sneak in the time to crank out those projects. And it was because they had something super, super deep in them that felt like this project had to come to life. And so I still maintain very romanticized views of 
of project number two that it has to be something that deep in your soul you feel is important yeah well important and just something that you feel good about mm -hmm. you know i mean with book number two which is as i was telling anthony earlier officially in production hooray so exciting university of illinois press new black study series that's a great series yeah it is it really is i love the editor don durante yes editor extraordinaire yes yes and uh, it's it's coming out spring 2021 so that's uh that's exciting stuff thank you so we gotta throw a party oh there will be a party because i did not do a party for book number oh, one. Oh no that's not good i didn't i was so burned out it was so anticlimactic i was just like oh there's the book oh no no we need to get the cakes the tote bags the t-shirts tote bags you've never seen people put no. Yeah, we go to Barnes and Noble and you see that oh. the tote bags, the grocery bags, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. They have the book on them. You should do that. Or I'll do it for you. Okay. I was going to say, I feel like that's really narcissistic to no. like, give a bunch of tote bags. No. And you could give them out as giveaways and prizes at your book talks, but I think okay. it's cool. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, well, we'll discuss the prizes or the whatever later, but um, I, I'm just really excited about it. I love everything about it. And I guess what I was just going to say is that I know that this is precisely the book that I wanted to be because I remember reading it or rereading drafts a year ago and feeling like, wow, this is solid. And looking at the chapters a month ago and feeling like this is this is what I really want this to be. I don't know if anyone else is going to like this. I don't know what the response is going to be, but I feel really good about what's on these pages. It's in my voice. I think that people who know me will recognize me in there. And that's not to say that there was none of that in that first book, but I think that that first book had to perform mm -hmm. a particular kind of scholarliness that... I didn't feel so attached to yeah, yeah. in this project. So I think it'll be a lot more accessible. I mean, I was writing about psychoanalysis for God's sakes in my first, <laughs> first book, right? So I think it'll be a lot more accessible to just people who are wanting to read about another underexplored, underexamined dimension of black life. I love that you said you want to make it more accessible because as you know, folks that are not academics don't realize this, but there's this peculiar thing where I don't know who, but there are those party poopers that say if your work is accessible, then it's not rigorous, which I can't stand. Well, let me just say this, making something accessible and not dumbing it down is 20 times harder than writing in a bunch of jargon. Mm. I kid you not. Like to make really, to my mind, complex ideas accessible to a broader audience to really make your language clear, that takes so much more work. It does. Than if I just wanted to kind of speak in the language of my discipline, if you will, that would have been a much faster book to write than the one that I actually wrote. Oh, totally. Which is why I have a totally different process for writing this book, not mm -hmm. just in terms of like what time of the day that I write it, but in terms of, you know, obviously I have no di dissertation committee, mm -hmm. but now 
you get to curate which readers you want to give you feedback. Yeah. You can be more selective about that. So I feel really lucky. And this is something that happened really accidentally and serendipitously. I have two super cool reader groups, writing oh, groups. Nice. And one of them is all creative writers, no academics. Oh, so wow. One of them's a poet. Mm -hmm. Uh, slash novelist. Another one is a journalist slash nonfiction writer. And the other one's a history PhD mm -hmm. uh, who also is a journalist. But I also have another group where it's Asian American women social scientists. Hmm. Actually, I'm the only cisgender I'm male like, why'd they let you in? I know. <laughs> I feel very lucky that they've As let me should. into this space. As you should. <laughs> but what's cool about having the... There's one group that, that thinks about it mainly from the prose angle and mm -hmm. then another group that thinks about it from the social science angle. I, I love that these are the people that are helping me get the book to get where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, that's awesome. Shout out to writer homies. Writer homies are so important. I mean, I don't have constructed groups like that, but going back to you know finding the people that you need, like one of my colleagues shout out Suzanne, does amazing scholarly work, but she writes in a way for me that's really aspirational. So she you know, practices yoga and she talks about her yoga practice a lot in her scholarship. And she does a really good job of intermingling like the professional and the personal and uh, just writing in a way that's like beautiful and accessible. So whenever I need to feel inspired, I try to read some of her stuff. Uh, before I even began my process. What's her, her full name? Because I really love this concept of the writer role models for the oh, second book. Oh, Suzanne Bost. Suzanne Bost. Yeah, she does uh, a lot of work in Latinx literature. Cool. So she's fantastic, a beautiful writer, uh, but someone who I think for me has demonstrated that you can bring your full self to the page and still achieve a good deal of professional success and personal satisfaction, which I think is a very hard line to toe. It is. It is so, very hard. Yeah. But there are the people that are doing it. So though. that's what I'm saying. Like finding those people that you want to emulate in that particular way is so crucial when, you know, you don't have your dissertation committee of superstars who are in in those spaces to, to do that kind of work for you. Yeah, I feel like the writing teachers that I have for the second book, I've actually not met most of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except on like Twitter or something. Uh -huh. But Roxane Gay, mm -hmm. who manages to have super rigorous intellectual discussion whilst being herself and, you know, using curse words or whatever. Mm -hmm. Kieze Lehman, um, through Roxanne and Kieze, I fell into this rabbit hole of other writers. So Tressie McMillan Cottom, mm -hmm. Imani Perry. These are people that I think have brilliantly welded the personal, yeah. the intellectual. Not that you could separate the two. Right. And I think that they've demonstrated with their with their with their work that that separation between the personal and intellectual is an arbitrary yeah boundary that shouldn't even exist yeah and i think one of the you know just kind of talking about some of the distinctions between book one and book two is that normally when you are writing book two you have more stability and security mm -hmm. so i say 
use that privilege. You know, you can really bring more of yourself to the page and you can be a little bit more vulnerable Mm -hmm. and you can be a little bit more open, which is going to draw people in. Right. So um, that's something that, you know, you may not feel entirely comfortable doing pre-tenure that I think for book number two, you have a little bit more space to make that happen. Right. And I think just I want to say to folks that are writing books right now, it's okay to advocate for yourself. Yeah. If you have folks that give you a review that you're not necessarily into, it's okay to push back. That's why you have an editor. That's a beautiful thing about writing books versus journal articles is the editor can help shepherd and push back against reviews that you're not really vibing with. Yeah. The other thing I would say is, oh my gosh, if you don't like your cover, fight back. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually had to be like cover advocates for people. I've had people send me their covers and say, I really don't like this cover, but this is what the press wants to use. And I'm like, no, you, I mean, I have literally had like searched with people to find alternate images that they can send to their press to use instead of the the images that they were given by their press because their images are pretty crappy, I think. Yeah. Um, But I think that's an important point that you make too. I mean, I don't know what your experience was like, but for me, I didn't have a great, it wasn't a bad relationship. It was more like no relationship with my editor for book number one. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even know that it could be a relationship Mm -hmm. because it was just so transactional that I thought that that was the process. And then I would hear about people going to lunch with their editor and their editor giving them this kind of feedback. And I was like, I I want that. I want to have like lunch with my editor. I want to have like cool conversations with my editor and I want them to be an advocate for my ideas. And so I actually decided that for book number two, I was going to be very selective about, which is, again, I guess a, another shift in your thinking. For book number one, you're like, anybody, please publish this any tenure, <laughs> right? But for book number two, I was like, I'm going to be very selective about who publishes this book, and I'm going to make the relationship with the editor a huge part of that criteria, right? So that's how we kind of mentioned my extraordinary editor, Dawn. But one of the reasons why I'm publishing with this press in the series is because of my relationship with her. So that was something that was really important with book number two as well. Yeah, Dawn, I don't even work with your press (laughs) and I have gone to lunch (laughs) and dinner with Dawn. And I think that she represents and I'm just using Dawn as an example. Yeah. She represents the type of editor that I think appeals because they're just so invested in the advancement of ideas. Yes. And they get racial politics and yes. gender politics and queer politics. And they're just fun to talk to. Yes. And when writing a book, there's a lot of moments where you're just not, the momentum's not moving your way. And so having a someone that you can just riff with is great. Yes. I'm working with... NYU Press, uh, Eileen Kalish, who's mm-hmm. been so enthusiastic and such a cheerleader, mm-hmm. and not just for this book, but cheerleader about other things. She is just the type of person that's just so excited about ideas, particularly with the areas of race and gender. And I have a little bit of good news that I want to share. <gasps> she pitched this idea to me a year ago, 
and it is now official. <gasps> she said, hey, do you want to start your own series oh on Asian American sociology? Oh, Anthony, that's awesome. So I get to be a gatekeeper. Congra- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, okay, not congratulations to that, but, but congratulations. That's I'm amazing. I'm very excited because this is, I know what it's like to have a super cool idea and feeling like you just can't find a home for it or yeah. people don't get it. And for me, I'm excited that I get to work on a, uh, a community that I feel like hasn't gotten enough play within the discipline. And I get to infuse my obsession with prose and sociology. Like I'm a, as obsessed with sentences as I am with sociology. And oh, so wow. this is really going to be a fun thing to do. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. All right, well, I'm gonna wrap us up for this episode of Professoring. Before we kick it to our next segment, we're gonna hear a little bit from NCFDD. The National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, or NCFDD, is a professional development organization with the mission of changing the face of power in the academy. We aim to strengthen the higher education system and improve the academic experience by offering specialized coaching and mentoring to faculty, postdocs, and graduate students. Please visit us at www.facultydiversity.org to learn more about our services, including institutional membership, our faculty success program, and our on-campus workshops. Well, as everybody knows, at the end of every episode, we have this segment called peer review all of you know what peer review is it's this lovely thing where you submit your articles to journals or you submit your books to presses and then these anonymous scholars in the field give their two cents about it and there's this thing where reviewer number one is supposed to be the nice person reviewer number two is the what did you say last time not nice you said something. I said not nice. Not nice. Not nice. That's Sometimes they can border on cranky, cranky, haterific, whatever term you want to use. So every week we pick a topic in which Badia and myself will be engaging in peer review. And this week's topic is something that was mentioned earlier. Yeah. Academic, Academic jargon. jargon. <laughs> I'm actually going to be pro academic jargon with one caveat okay depends on the context okay so here's the deal we've gotten all this training and whatever field we we are in and i love that academic jargon can also serve as shorthands for humongous topics that we've spent years reading about and i love this not because you can use academic jargon to box people out but with your to be honest i love academic jargon because of the jokes so <laughs> when I i'm feel with like my these are inherently bad jokes but okay yeah, they are very bad <laughs> jokes but when i am with my nerdy nerdy fellow friends who have survived academia despite the odds sometimes it's really funny to make a joke about hegemony or <laughs> racial formation or some other theoretical concept and as i'm saying it it makes me sound like such a loser but i like the jokes okay um and and i think that to some extent there is something really cool 
about developing an expertise to the point where you can hit the ground running with concepts that have to do with the areas you study. So I'm a sociologist, so this would be topics related to gender, race, sexuality. If you think about the power of a term like intersectionality to help anchor folks to start thinking about the world from the perspective of, of black women, for example, I think that's a, that's a case in where academic jargon has a lot of power. So yeah. uh, beyond the jokes, they can be powerful as well. Okay. I'm not mad at that hot take. I would say I feel the same way. I mean, it's not like I don't think that there is a place for it, uh -huh. right? For all the reasons that you said. I think that my only critique of academic jargon is not jargon itself, but the way that people use it to exclude. Mm-hmm. So that's when I find jargon to be particularly horrible is when you're writing something that is intentionally obtuse, obtuse. I would say. And also I notice this a lot with graduate students in particular, right, who are just kind of coming into the field or to the discipline. And I'm sure I was guilty of this myself, but I notice it a lot more now that I teach graduate students is how academic jargon is adopted as a way to kind of gain entrance into this club, mm -hmm. if you will, without being 100% or even 75% clear about what certain terms mean and do. So, you know, I feel like a lot of times I have to tell my graduate students that, you know, I don't think you need these 20 letter words to <laughs> say what it is you're trying letters. to say. And so part of it is just also, I don't know how much my fellow colleagues, faculty members really, how much time they really spend with people who are new to the profession and telling them about you know, when is it appropriate? When is it necessary to actually use that type of language? And when it's not. Yeah, I've been on the, the butt end of being excluded from academic jargon. My first foray into grad school was cultural studies, mm, yeah. which was very hard for my little brain to understand. <laughs> it's one of the cultural studies is this thing where you read like Luis Althusser and you kind of have a sense of what you're reading and then like six years later like okay I get it yeah I couldn't explain it right now but I get I, yeah. I kind of just get it but with academic jargon it's I feel like my relationship to it has also been shaped by the fact that my social relationships aren't just people in academia so yeah. when I was in grad school I would be embedded in rooms where people would do academic jargon all the time. In fact, there were some classes where on my notebook paper, I would, I remember there's one dude in a two minute span would drop like 20 different scholars names. And I was just like, wow, tick marks galore. I yeah. literally counted it. And then I would leave grad school and go hang out with friends, some of whom didn't finish college, maybe just, just finished high school. and they're not any less intellectually engaged with the world. Sure. It just it's, comes in a different form. And so I feel like I got a lot of practice 
having to talk about the ideas mentioned in grad school with audiences that didn't necessarily have grad school training. Sure. And it showed me that you don't need the academies in order to explain big concepts. But I think that that's a key difference, right? Because I think that a lot of times people don't have that balance. Oh, yeah. And so then they come to adopt this particular language and it's alienating to them and it also alienates them. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up our episode of Professoring. Once again, thank you for listening. If you have much more to say about this topic, feel free to hit up podcast at facultydiversity.org. I'm on Twitter. Badia's on Twitter. Badia, you want to share yours? I'm on Twitter at Badia Ahad. And I am at Anthony Ocampo. All right. Until next time. Bye. Bye.